134 is a song of thanksgiving for undeserved deliverance. A song of thanksgiving for undeserved deliverance. According to the superscription, the song was written when David feigned insanity to escape from Abimelech. Abimelech is a dynastic title for Achish, the king of Gath. 1 Samuel 21, 10-15 Then David arose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, king of Gath. David greatly feared Achish, king of Gath, so he disguised his sanity before them and acted insanely in their hands and scribbled on the doors of the gate and let his saliva run down into his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see this man behaving as a madman? Why do you bring him to me? Do I lack madmen, so that you have brought this one to act the madman in my presence? Shall this one come into my house? Though David played the part of a maniac, he attributes his deliverance from Achish to the Lord. In response, David affirmed God's goodness and called upon the people of God to praise him for deliverance. As we look at Psalm 34, we're going to split this psalm in two parts. It's 22 verses long, and we're going to look first at the first 10 verses. And in doing the first 10 verses, verse 1 through 5, we'll see praise, uh, David's praise, verse 6 through 7, David's protection, uh, verse 8 to 10, uh, God's promise, and then we'll stop there. In our next devotional, we'll pick up the second half of this psalm, we'll look at David's perseverance in verses 11 to 16, and finally, David's preservation in verses 17 to 22. So let's begin with the first part of this psalm, and let's go back to verse 1 through 5 and see David's praise. Again, our theme here in Psalm 34 is thanksgiving for undeserved deliverance. David's praise, verse 1 through 5. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make its boast in the Lord. The humble will hear it and rejoice. O magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. They looked to him and were radiant and their faces will never be ashamed. David begins with a call to worship. The object of this worship is who? The Lord, Yahweh. Notice the time element at all times. David at all times was in a place of worship. That's how life is to be lived. Our life is to be lived in constant praise to God. Colossians 3.17, whatever you do in word and deed, do all to, in the name of who? The Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks, giving praise to God the Father through him. Notice David begins here by saying, I will what? Bless. Now that verb for bless uh, is, uh, comes from the root term to kneel to bow down, uh, and, and it gives the idea of appreciation or gratitude. I will kneel before the Lord. I will worship the Lord and express my appreciation, my gratitude to Him. And notice that His praise is always where? In David's mouth. It's on the tip of His tongue. His worship reflects His heart. And verse 2 drives this home. My soul will make its boast in the Lord. His soul, in other words, the very nature of his being, the very essence of his being, is praising God. He worships God with the totality of himself. And then David's worship becomes his witness. The humble will hear of it and be glad. In other words, they're going to people, though the community, 
is the public is going to join in David's worship, David's praise, because they're hearing it, they're seeing it. As he worships the humble, and the humble depicts those who have a relationship with God, uh, because God only hears from the humble. The humble are encouraged and rejoice or praise God with him. And when they hear David extolling God, they're glad. David's joy is infectious. When he's joyfully worshiping, others join in and begin to worship joyfully as well. Then David asserts in verse 4 that he sought the Lord. The word sought here or, uh, means to ask of or to inquire. What is he doing? He's asking God. He's petitioning God. And he continues, and he heard me. That word heard here means to answer or respond. So I inquired of the Lord and the Lord answered me. I asked, he answered. Notice that God answered with what? Action. He delivered me from all my fears. Listen, David had much to fear. He had Saul and, and Saul's band of uh, soldiers that were after him. He feared. Uh, he comes to, to Philistine. He hears all these things about the king of, of, uh, of Gath. And now he's filled with fear again because he knows, hey, this guy's going to want to kill me too. And God does what? God delivers him. He cries out to God. God hears. God delivers. God acts. And David's companions experienced the deliverance with David. It wasn't just David being delivered, but all those who were with him, his mighty man and their families, they were delivered. And so their faces were radiant. In other words, their faith, faces were glowing. They, they, you could see the joy on their face. Their faces were not ashamed. They were not embarrassed to be counted with David and to, to worship God. You know, it reminds us of Michal, uh, David's wife, the daughter of Saul. How when David brought the ark to the tabernacle, David was dancing and rejoicing and the people with him. And Michal looked at him and was ashamed. She was embarrassed. Why? Why would she be ashamed? Because David was filled with joy and worshipped God. Only one reason why someone would be ashamed. Because they don't have a relationship with that God. Well, here these people also have a relationship with God. And it's all over their face. They're rejoicing. They're not ashamed. They want to be counted amongst the faithful worshipers. And so we see David's praise. Now, in verses 6 through 7, let's consider David's protection. David's protection. The poor man cried, and the Lord heard him, and saved him out of all his troubles. Now, who's the poor man? David. David cried, the Lord heard him, and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and rescues them. Now, notice again in verse 6, God answers the cry of distress with action. When we cry out in distress, God is not silent. He always answers, and he answers with action action. Now, notice who the source of deliverance is. It comes from the angel of Yahweh. Now, who is the angel of Yahweh? Well, obviously when we hear the word angel, we get a picture of what an angel is, either one of those seraphim, archangels, or cherubim, uh, but we have this idea of an angel. Now, the Hebrew term for angel here in Malach refers to a messenger, one sent with a word from God. The key here, however, is that this is not just any angel, but it's the angel of Yahweh. Now, we have examples of all kinds of angels throughout the Old Testament. 
But when we have this specific angel, this it's always angel singular of Yahweh. Yahweh's angel or Yahweh's messenger. Yahweh's messenger in the Old Testament is always Jesus Christ. It's a what we call a theophany or a Christophany of the second person of the Godhead. Now, what that means is this. Long before Jesus Christ, the second person of the Godhead, long before the Son of God took on human flesh at the incarnation and was born, his human body was born, long before that, he would take on the appearance of a person. And he would come and stand and speak as a messenger of God. That is the second person of God. So if you're going through the Old Testament and you come to that phrase, angel of the Lord, and it's always in the sense of capital L, lower or smaller cap, O-R-D, that's Yahweh, that angel of the Lord, that messenger of Yahweh, is always Jesus Christ. Who delivered David then? None other than Jesus Christ. And what we have here is a picture of salvation. Now, he's not delivering him from sin, but it is a picture of what he does eventually do when he comes as the Messiah, as the Christos, as the Christ, and delivers us from the oppression of sin. But notice that the angel of the Lord camps around David and his men. Now, the fact that he camps around is he surrounds them. Now, again, angels are supernatural beings, but they're not omnipotent. They're not all-powerful. They're not omnipresent. They're not everywhere present. It would take lots of angels to surround. But this one angel of the Lord, being none other than the Son of God himself, encircles David's complete camp. There's not a place where David nor his men were that the angel of the Lord, Jesus Christ, could not deliver them and defend them and uh, camp around them. You know, this supernatural aid was also experienced by Joshua uh, when he prepared to lead Israel into the promised land. There in Joshua chapter 5, verses 13 to 15, he was, con he was confronted with a man known as the commander of the army of Yahweh. Guess what? That commander of the army of Yahweh is none other than who? Jesus Christ. So, the angel of the Lord encamps around who? Everybody? Anybody? No. Only those who fear Him. Those who fear the Lord. And, and here is the basic theme we have in this psalm. Is that God delivers those who reverence Him. Those who have a proper respect, a proper fear of God. And the, the, obviously when this angel uh, appeared, he appeared... Not because of any other reason, but what? Just one. They feared. They reverenced God. Folks, what does God want from us? Well, obviously he wants us to humble ourselves as we come before him. But involved in that humbling is elevating him. Humbling is lowering ourselves, but it's also elevating him. And, and, and that elevation comes out of having a proper reverence, a proper awe for God. That can only come through a right relationship with God. Listen, somebody who just talks about faith but doesn't have any actions, as James says, he's got dead faith. That faith doesn't do anything. It has no reverence, it has no fear, no respect for God. 
At least the demons fear and tremble, though they don't do, they don't, it doesn't move them to action, but at least they got that much going for them. But if we don't have a reverence for God, if we don't have an awe of God, if we don't have a fear of God, he's not, he's not going to deliver us. And, you know, to be very honest, I think there's very little in way of fearing the Lord today. You know, if we feared the Lord, our attitudes would be different. If we feared the Lord, our works would be different. If we feared the Lord, we'd act differently. We'd think differently. We'd talk differently. And so, if we all take an honest evaluation of ourselves, we all have a lot to learn in way of fearing the Lord. Why do you go to church? Do you go to church? Is it important to come to church? Now, as you work your way through those answers, why do you go to church? Well, I have to. I don't have a choice. I'm forced to go. Well, then you've answered the question. You're not coming to church because you fear God. The answer as to why do you come to church? Because I reverence God. I want to worship God. I want to extol God. Well, I can do that at home. Sure you can. And I understand there are times when that's appropriate. You're sick. Uh, you're out of town. You're, you're called into work. Okay. Uh, th- those may be legitimate. Uh, you know, we, we, had, we went through a time of a lockdown, and certainly during that time, it was a legitimate time when we could not gather in the house of God. But folks, when that time passes... And, God, and the people of God have an opportunity to gather as the people of God because we fear God, we should want to come together and worship God as he's commanded us to do. That's reverencing God. Notice what happened here. God delivered them. God delivered David. And what does David do? He begins to worship. And what happens? The people with him come and worship together with him. Folks, God has delivered us in so many ways. Shouldn't we want to come and reverence God together? Shouldn't we want to come and lift Him up together? But maybe it is that we don't have that fear of God. We don't have that right reverence for God. We just think, well, this is just taking up time. Or, well, ho-hum, you know, I've got other things to do. Again, If God has delivered you, the right response for God saving you is to want to reverence Him, to want to lift Him up, to want to extol Him, and to want to be with others who do. And if you don't have that desire, I would challenge you to consider why you don't have that same desire. You know, what's going on in your life that's keeping you from that? What's gotten in you between you and God that keeps you from wanting to reverence Him and worship Him and extol Him, not just on your own, but with other people of God. You know, when people see God's power, there's only one reaction, and that's to want to reverence and then worship. I mean, think about it. When, when Peter, James, and John saw the transfigured Christ, they fell down on their face and they worshiped. And what was the next thing they wanted to do? They wanted to build a place where people could gather to worship. Don't we want the same thing? If we don't, maybe it's because we're not 
reverencing God. Oh, preacher, who are you to tell me? Listen, I'm not telling you. I'm only showing you what the Scripture says. You've got to consider that between you and the Holy Spirit and ask yourself. Well, don't judge me. Hey, I'm not judging you. I'm simply pointing out to you what saith the Scripture, what God says here in His Word. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 3 through 5, Paul told the Corinthians, He was with them in weakness and fear and much trembling. My speech and my preaching were in demonstration of the Spirit and power that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Friends, maybe that's what we need to be praying for. We need to be praying for the power of God to be so evident before the lives of people that they will be driven back onto their knees and that they would have, have a desire to want to reverence God. That they'd have a desire to want to praise God. Not just privately, but publicly as well. Let's pray that God might give us a view, if you will. A vision, if you will. Now, don't think of vision in the wrong way there. But that our eyes might behold the power of God. That we might see Him work. And that we would see that demonstration of the Holy Spirit. That we might see that demonstration of the Spirit's uh, power. And that our response would be to reverence God and to come and worship Him. Verses 8 to 10 gives us the promise. The, the promise from God. God's promise. Taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. Oh, fear the Lord, you His saints. For to those who fear him there is no want. The young lions do lack and suffer hunger. But they who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. Now that word, to taste, means to test. Test and see that the Lord is good. Now the idea here of tasting, uh, you know, think of the king's cupbearer. He would taste the food and the drink to make sure that it was safe. He tested it. Okay, to validate that it was good. Well, he's challenging us. David's saying, hey, listen, test God and see that he's good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. See, we're not just to believe in the Lord's goodness. We need to experience the goodness of God. And God's goodness is in his deliverance, but also in his gifts. As we'll see here in the text. In verses 4 to 7, we'll see his deliverance. In verses 9 and 10, we'll see his gifts. God's goodness is an expression of his character. Blessed is the man who takes refuge or trust in him. Now, that word blessed means happy. True happiness comes from surrender to the living God. And then he says that those who live in reverence before God will not lack any good thing. God is good. He's ready to give us good things. But if we're lacking good things, it's not because God isn't good. If we're lacking, it's failure on our part, not His part. Matthew 6, 25 and 33, I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So again... God is good. God wants to give you good things. But if you're not seeking first God's kingdom and His righteousness, guess what? All those good things are going to sit on the dock of heaven. And you'll not receive one good thing God has for you. Now in contrast to those who fear the Lord are the young lions who lack and suffer hunger. 
Now these predators go hungry. But those who fear the Lord, those who seek the Lord, they're going to be satisfied. Now, we need to set this in the right context. We live in a world of disaster. We live in a world of famine. So how do we take this verse literally? I mean, consider this. Our Lord Jesus Christ knew what it meant to suffer. Paul often went to bed hungry, according to 2 Corinthians 11, 24-27. So we have to understand, we're not immune to the consequences of the fall. This verse here is not saying, when it says that God is going to provide us and give us good and so on and so forth, uh, that uh, we will not be one of any good thing, doesn't mean that we aren't going to feel the effects of a sin-cursed world. It doesn't mean there won't be times that we may go hungry. It doesn't mean there won't be times that we won't struggle. We are not immune to the consequences of the fall. However, what it does promise us is God's protection and provision. That is, He will save our soul. He will provide for our needs. We may not experience all those things in this life, but we will experience all of them in His kingdom in the next life. But there surely are signs of His goodness here and now. See, what David's presenting to us here is the real solution to the problem of suffering. Taste and see that the Lord is good. See, even when you're suffering, the Lord's still good. His character didn't change. Your conditions may have changed, but you know what? He's still going to do a good. You mean to tell me my suffering is good if that's what God has deemed for your life? But more than that, the Lord is good in himself. Paul put it this way. In Philippians 1.21, For me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. You see, if you lack Christ, you lack everything. If you have Christ, you have everything. And so when he says, those who seek the Lord shall not lack any good thing, that's what he's talking about. Don't, don't, don't bank on a false security here. Don't take this one verse, lift it out of its context, and say, listen... I'm, I'm never going to want for clothes. I'm never going to want for uh, money. I'm never going to want, uh, want for health. I'm never going to want for food because this verse tells me I'm going to always have those things. That's not what he's promising. He's promised to give us every good thing, yes. But sometimes those things aren't good for us. I know that's hard for us to think about. That's hard for us to wrap our minds around. How can that not be good for me? Listen, only God can answer that question. What this verse does assure us is that all the good things that God has for us, He can begin giving us now. But we certainly will receive them in His kingdom. That kingdom that will come. That kingdom that is in heaven and that will one day come to earth. You know, as we consider these first ten verses of Psalm 34, David's uh, praise and protection and God's promise, there's much for us to think about. And I would challenge you, again, as to what I challenged a moment ago, do you fear God? Are you someone who seeks God? You see, because those who fear God seek God. If you don't have a desire to seek God, if you're not seeking His kingdom, if you're not pursuing His kingdom, I would really challenge you to begin asking yourself why you aren't. You know, if other things have gotten in the way, I would challenge you to find out what things have gotten in your way of seeking first God's kingdom and His righteousness. And then confessing and forsaking those things. 
I ask you to consider whether you actually fear the Lord. Do you have a right reverence for God? Because if we have a right reverence for God, it doesn't mean we're going to be perfect. Listen, none of us are perfect. We're, 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 we're sinners in progress on this side of eternity. We're working on to glory. We're moving on from grace to more grace. But if there's no reverence in your life, that means there, that your life is shipwrecked. You may not think it is. You may think everything's great and everything's groovy. But before a holy God, your life is shipwrecked. If you're not reverencing God, if you're not putting God in the right place, it's going to have a major impact on what you view as important in this life. You know, it's going to dictate what you say. Listen, a lack of fear, listen, you know, we talked about the mouth in the, in the, in the book of James. James talks about controlling the tongue. You know, if there's no fear of God, if there's no reverence for God, then you won't give a second thought to what comes out of your mouth. We talked in James 2 about, you know, caring for the helpless. Listen, if there's no reverence for God, you really won't care what God says about the helpless. He'll just take care of you and do what you want to do. And the same goes for gathering together with God's people. At the end of the day, if we truly reverence God, we'll want to praise God with his people. Somebody asked me not too long ago, is it important to gather with God's people? The short answer is yes, it is. When we gather together with God's people, that's the time that we're supposed to be edifying one another. How can we edify one another if we're not with one another? You know, when we're with one another, when we're in amongst the people of God, that's when we edify one another and also bear one another's burdens. How do we bear one another's burdens if we're not with each other? As well, spiritual gifts. Every believer has spiritual gifts. Why were you given spiritual gifts? To serve one another. How can you possibly serve one another if you're not with one another? How about Colossians when it tells us that we're supposed to speak to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs? How can you possibly speak to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs if you're not with one another? Folks, it's clear from, from Psalm 34 that people who rightly reverence God, it's contagious. And they'll want, it, it will spread and they will want to be with other people who are doing the same. Think about what I just said about why coming together with God's people is important. You know the number one reason why it's important? Because it's the time and the place where the people of God corporately reverence God together. Psalm 34, verses 1 to 10. Father God, I thank and praise you, Lord, for the psalm that you've given to us. Father, to see how you deliver you delivered David from Saul. You delivered him from Abimelech, people who meant him much evil. Father, you've delivered us from sin and from Satan. Certainly, our deliverance is so much more greater and sweeter. But nonetheless, Lord, when you delivered him from his enemies and from his circumstances, his response was to worship you. His response was to praise you, to extol you, to boast of you, to reverence you. 
And Father God, to be honest, I think that we are so ho-hum today that, oh yeah, God saved me. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going to heaven. And yet, I don't see this same desire that David had. I ask, Lord, where, where is our boasting? Where is our rejoicing? Where is our extolling? Where is our reverence? Where is our desire to put forth the true opinion of who you are and what you've done? Oh, Lord, we've gone through difficult times. We've gone through days when we could not be together. But Father, now as we have opportunity to be together, I pray that the people who reverence you, those who understand your deliverance and the impact it has had on their life, that Father, you might give them that desire to reverence, not just privately, but to be contagious and reverence you publicly, to encourage others to do the same. To move others to do just that. Praise and worship you and boast in you. Father, I would pray that you would help us to see how you have delivered us. Even in the midst of, of a pandemic, Father, you have ultimately delivered us. You've brought us on to the other side. Yes, we're still going through some difficult times and I'm sure some difficult days to come. But for the greater part, Father, you've given us an opportunity to once again come together and worship. And so I pray, Lord, that you might move upon each of our hearts to have that desire. That we may be filled with joy and corporately come together to reverence you. We pray in your son's precious name. Amen.